Hi, this is Grace Cho, Entrepreneurs Creative Careers. Today, I'm very thrilled to be speaking with Raghava KK. Raghava is a contemporary artist born in Bangalore, India, named by CNN as one of the 10 most fascinating people in the world. Raghava is a multidisciplinary artist working in visual arts genres such as painting, film, installation, multimedia, and performance. Raghava began his career actually as a cartoonist in 1997 with a leading Indian publication. His accomplishments are just so many. He has done so much already. And it's a dizzying array of accomplishments, not just in art, from global speaking engagements at leading conferences such as TED to lectures to at art institutions, startups. And I'm really excited to discuss all of that with Raghava today. So hi, Raghava. Hello, Grace. How are you? Hi. I know a little bit about your background. It is an extraordinary story. So I must ask you, how did you get started as an artist? <laughs> I come from this really academic family. And although they were academics, they really valued storytelling. In fact, when I was seven years old, my dad asked me casually, he said, Raghava, who are you? I said, Pa, I'm Raghava. He said, but I named you. So if I change your name, will you change? I said, no. He said, who are you? I said, I'm this person in front of you. And he said, every cell in that person changes every seven years. So do you change? Are you the same person? I said, maybe I'm my thoughts then. He said, if they're your thoughts, whose thoughts are they? Then I said, I'm my feelings. He said, who's experiencing the feelings? So essentially that existential crisis, which happened to be a staple part of our diet every evening, turned into a long conversation where I realized that everything that I thought I was either changing or not me. So we came to the conclusion that evening that we are storytellers. And he said something that really changed my life. He said, if you're a storyteller, can you live the best story you can tell? And so I dreamt up a fabulous story that I could live. And I used the old man's philosophy against him and quit formal education to pursue a career as a cartoonist. Amazing story. Your father is a very wise man. And to have those conversations when you're such a young boy, that's incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I have the same kind of conversations with my kids. That's wonderful. <laughs> so tell us why cartoons first? What drew you to cartoons in the first place? I think given that much of my education and time was spent trying to acquire knowledge. I found that I responded to cartoons in a very different way. They made me laugh and they made me think in a way that no other form of communication did for me. Cartoons was really powerful. I was always attracted to the bizarre, to the exaggerated, to the larger than life personality. So I guess I wanted to try and, and play around with that and try and make people laugh and think. So you were how old when you first started your cartoons? I started cartooning professionally when I was in the ninth or tenth grade, where I was I would publish cartoons in local newspapers. Cartoons gave me an opportunity to communicate, to stand out, to be noticed, to express my feelings. So you were cartooning, you got more popular, you got successful. But then at some point in your career, you, you wanted to switch over to the fine arts world. So tell us about that journey. 
you know, unfortunately, it was uh, a series of cartoons that I published that was received with a lot of anger by the public that forced me to take a break from cartooning. I had published this cartoon about 9-11 where I had Osama bin Laden biting into an apple and behind you can see the World Trade Center collapsing. What was meant to be a naive observation of called the bite off the big apple, how one act of terror could potentially change the world, was seen and received by the American cartoonists as, as an insult. And what I found really disturbing was that cartoonists whose, whose job is to make light of difficult situations and sort of allow us to go past the emotional response were the ones who were reacting so aggressively. And it's also made me realize that when you get extreme left of center, you start becoming <laughs> no different from the people you're fighting. Mm. And I decided to take on a medium that had less to do with communication and more to do with expression. So I quit cartooning and I started traveling and backpacking and hitchhiking. And in my travels, I met artists who inspired me to paint. And I discovered painting. I wanted to go beyond the line and see if I can express my spirit as opposed to trying to be very purely communicative with my art. So when you start to take up painting, it was really self-taught or did you actually also go to a school or how did you master that? To begin with, I hadn't formally learned how to paint. So I had my own relationship with pigments and having no uh, prior knowledge of how to use a brush, I went to an art store and I would get lost there with all the varieties of instruments. And I decided to use the one instrument I knew best, which is my hands. What I discovered was that I would get really bored with something as soon as an expression turned into a formula. So I would just play. And sometimes when you play, something beautiful happens. And then when you repeat that, you can almost repeat that energy. When you keep repeating it, it starts to lose its, its spirit. And when it starts losing its spirit, it starts getting really mundane and boring. My watercolors were really selling like hotcakes. But there was something in me that was dying in the process. And I could no longer live with calling myself an artist when I was producing these works that I were almost muscle memory. I kept adding new colors and that would bring some amount of excitement. But obviously I felt deep within me there was more to discover. And, and the best way to find out who you are is to endeavor to, to be who you're not. And so I decided to continue experimenting and reinventing myself. Bravo to that because change is not always easy. You have to have a certain amount of risk appetite knowing that you may fail. Have there been other moments in your life which you believed were adversity at the time, but really were important pivotal moments? Absolutely. My life has been full of those moments. There have been many turning points. There was this time when I started, I, I started creating more realistic paintings where I started using a brush and acrylic paints. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could paint realistically, so I created a whole new uh, identity for myself as an artist. Looking back, the first phase of my life was really expressing my spirit. 
The second was really trying to use my intellect to construct images and iconic visual encounters. And both of them had their deaths, so to speak. And what emerged from that was a combination of both when I could balance the two worlds. And what I've noticed that is every death of mine has come back, every project that died or every attempt or every journey that had a dead end seems to come back in a more beautiful integrated form later on in life. Now I'm in an even more interesting space because earlier I used to look at life and art as one. When I lived something, I would learn how to express it authentically and communicate it. So my life went from living life to expressing life to communicating life. And each one of these have had their own individual journeys and come together. And I thought I've arrived. Here I am expressing my life. But recently, in a conversation with my dad, we came to the conclusion that your private identity is different from your public identity. And what I mean by that is they have actually opposite intentions. Your private identity, the objective is to remove layers of identity to find the truest essence of who you are. I am not Raghava. I am not male. I am not heterosexual, bisexual, asexual, bisexual. You transcend all those limitations. However, your public identity is actually the, the be most beautiful construction of a self. And it is when you can live with this dichotomy of deconstructing yourself privately and publicly creating the most glorious construction and knowing that public construction is nothing but a construct, there is no authenticity that I'm trying to present to the world. There are only journeys and every journey reveals a new glimpse of my spirit. Resolving this very difference between the personal identity and the public identity is, I think, a beautiful lifelong journey. The observation that I make of you is that as you go through your own personal journey and the art that comes out of that has an impact to the people who are actually viewing your philosophy of life through your art. And it is our belief, entrepreneurs' belief, it is my belief, that art can change the world. Art can change perspectives through visual imagery. Absolutely. And you've achieved that. What are your feelings on how visual imagery can really change perspectives of others? I believe you can change the world. Because the only thing one has to do is look within. If you truly believe that art has made a difference in your life, you start seeing that obviously art can change the world because it's art that has made you fall in love. That's, it's art that has moved you. And if it can move your world, then it certainly can move the world. Beautiful. I love that. As artists, we have this enormous unifying power. And there's education, there's business, there's media, there's technology. So you're a teacher, you're an artist, you're a philosopher. Uh, you're a very astute business person. How do you bring all these together? Oh, my God. I, I never do one thing at a time. I'm always working on at least 20 things at the same time. 
Some of them take years to manifest. Some of them take weeks. And some of them take days. The time doesn't matter for me. I have to manifest different facets of my personality. Every time I believe I'm something, I have to explore being the opposite of that. Therefore, it requires two different constructs of myself. For example, when I ran a tech startup to try and build a visual discovery engine, what I realized as an artist, I thought that value is what I think the world needs. But that value in the tech world is what people perceive as valuable. And they're completely opposite to each other. And while I was making paintings, which were expressing my idea of value, I was also creating products that I had to actually convince people that it could have value. So I know you're involved in a lot of different efforts at the moment. If you wanted to choose a couple and talk about a couple of those projects that are your current obsessions. I can talk about a project that I'm struggling with currently. I've been thinking about our relationship with time. Because that's the one resource we know is the most precious resource we have. We can't go back in time. We cannot control time. When I studied time in school, I was told it was a linear progression. You have born at zero, zero. You die at 80, 90, whatever. And you just travel along the line, the timeline of your life. I found that absurd because I never thought I was traveling time. Instead, I would imagine that I'm always in the present and time travels backwards towards me. What I mean by that is I'm not moving anywhere. Time is moving through me. When I visualized these two, one had a straight line that I traveled and it felt like I was a slave to time. The other, I, the t I was the pivot from which time moved through and I could curate any future to come towards me. So I found that the second perspective on time was far more empowering, and it reminded me that I'm not a slave to time, that I really curate who I become. And so I wanted to express this in the form of an art piece. So I was talking to my friend Arun, who's a, a, a watch enthusiast, and he and I were talking about, can we create a watch or a clock or some timepiece that allows people to experience time? differently. And in doing so, we got so deep into the mechanics of, of watchmaking. And when we interviewed some of the biggest watchmakers in the world, when I say that the avant-garde top watchmakers, none of them looked at time from an alternate perspective. They were so focused on the engineering of it that they lost track of our relationship with time. And when I looked at the art world, they looked at a a watch as only something that showed time. They refused to look at it as an art piece. And what I realized was, am I an artist putting out work in the art world or am I putting out a work in the watch world? Because the watch world looks at tradition, nostalgia, discipline, power. And the art world is all about non-utilitarianism. And I found that these two were at loggerheads with each other. And the objective now is to create a piece that can bring the two worlds together. So it is utilitarian in the sense that your relationship with time changes, but it's also philosophical in that you have a different approach to time. And I'm trying to find the sweet spot that both gives the philosophy and changes their day-to-day -day behavior. 
So that is a project that I'm struggling with. Give you an idea how how I bring these different worlds together. You're trying to bring all these siloed sectors to seeing a more unified and integrated view of time. Exactly. I'm not looking at a watch as craft. I'm looking at a watch as something that makes us have a relationship with this thing called time that we consider very precious. And all our decisions are directly related to our relationship with time. Utilitarian or craft or non-conceptual, decorative. And the, the business world will look at it as, as just a badly made timepiece. And I find that fascinating. How will you know that the project meets your own definition of success? Again, there is no objective to this. It is in doing this that I learn more about myself. I just keep producing pieces. I'm going to pre produce this clock that goes backwards and see whether my learning to see time backwards is going to have any effect on my relationship with time. That's just one project of 26 projects that I'm trying to deal with. Like. <laughs> 26. So we can't go through all 26 in detail, but... Did you want to rattle off a few? Right now, I'm talking to you from my friend, Priti Karan's house. She's one of the leading conservation biologists in India. And I'm here because we are launching our children's book we made together. We researched the, the top 10 animals that are suffering from urban wildlife conflict. And we created this children's book called Will You Play With Me in a regional language. And essentially, we're distributing thousands of these to children in villages along the Western Ghats in India. The book essentially asks, we have a protagonist, the, the baby macaque, and the baby macaque asks all the animals, will you play with me? And they all say, I'm too busy. At the end of the book, the, the baby macaque asks the reader, will you play with me? And the only way the reader can actually play with the macaque is to actually realize that the book is full of masks. If you pull out the masks, the characters all start playing. And essentially what we're asking the children to do is to actually wear the mask and live out the character's life and empathize with the character through play. And we realized that we don't want to create a book that's didactic. This is a National Geographic funded book. We didn't want to create a book that teaches you about the facts of an animal. We wanted you to imagine you are that animal. And therefore those animals start appearing in the children's book. The story changes as you pluck out those masks and you play. So this is again a project where we really wanted to inspire children to play and create the magical stories that the animals would mean to them and therefore build that empathy and love for something that's different from you, not anthropomorphed into being you, but different from you. That's magical, mystical. I love that project. Oh my gosh. So the final question that I had was artists are very solitary and they have a lot to say through their art, but they don't know how to get started, how to let the world know who they are and what they do. So what advice uh, can you give to artists who may be working alone somewhere? I think the first thing I would say is don't think, take things personally. Your projects may fail, but you never fail. 
You only fail when you let yourself down and only you have the right or the ability rather to let yourself down. There are two things you have to master to be an artist, in my opinion. The first is the ability to stay true to your own curiosity. And the second is the ability to learn how to have a conversation and see how the encounter can be designed, how people may encounter that work. I think it's a myth that just staying true to yourself will manifest automatically in the world, understanding and appreciating your work. If your intention is to have an impact, then you have to measure your, your success by how much impact you've actually created in the world. If your intention is to just explore, then stay true to the exploration. There is no right or wrong journey. There are many journeys. And by separating the two, by not taking things personally, and by holding yourself accountable to why you're doing what you're doing, I think you will start to get better and better at achieving your objectives. And the only way to do that is to fail multiple times. And so if you're failing and introspecting, you're on the right track. And if you get extremely successful and not let that affect you, I still think you're on the right track. Great advice because everybody fails. That's just sage advice. Raghava, it's been a great honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for this. Grace Cho. It's been a nice time. Bye-bye.